Grace and peace to you from him who is faithful and true, dear fellow redeemed. Let me take you to a peaceful looking place. Here the flowers and olive trees create a serene looking garden. It's a place where people for centuries and still to this day have gone to find a quiet place where they can be by themselves and where they can pray to God. This place may look peaceful and serene, but make no mistake, this is a place that has witnessed perhaps the most anguishing battle this world has ever known. This is the place that witnessed Jesus fighting the battle against the most agonizing temptation to escape from his father's will for him to face the pent-up wrath of God. They call this place Gethsemane. It's named for the word olive press, which would make sense with the fact that here they pressed olives from the olive trees in the olive grove that stood on the Mount of Olives into olive oil. So it's a fitting title, the olive press, for the place that witnessed the crushing weight of sin pressing down on the mind and soul of the one person who did not deserve it, Jesus. In all of this, Jesus endures in the face of the faithlessness of the people that he was doing it for. It was here Jesus fought the battle to uphold the faithfulness of God. So in our text today, Matthew brings us to the garden where we see the weight of sin pressing down on Jesus and we see him prove that God is faithful. We see Jesus prove himself faithful for you and we see Jesus prove that God has been faithful to you all the way along. Now, after leaving the upper room, Jesus crosses with his disciples through the Kidron Valley down into the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a place where they went often, especially during the last week of Jesus' life. And so for the disciples, it seems like nothing is amiss when Jesus stations the disciples and he takes Peter, James, and John a little farther with him in order to pray. It was those three disciples that had seen him in his highest glory, and now it was going to be those three that saw him in his deepest distress. And Jesus begins to show those disciples his deepest distress. He tells them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Then he goes a little farther from then and he pours himself out in the most fervent hour of prayer with the pinnacle of that prayer being those words we heard before. My father, if it is possible, May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus had known all along what his father's will was. He had been telling the disciples all week, the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. 
In even more clear and blunt terms, he had told those disciples, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. It wasn't as if Jesus had forgotten what his Father's will had been all along, but now it was the night before. And now the agony of it all was pressing down on him in the garden. You know how hard it can be to sleep the night before you've got an early flight or a big test in the morning or the night before you're going to preach a sermon. Jesus has an appointment with death on the following morning. And so he displays his true humanity. He shows us his distress and the agony of anticipating what's going to happen to him on the following morning. And he's longing and praying for a way that doesn't involve facing the agony of his innocent suffering and death on the cross. But the father's will had written his son's death into the plan long ago. The father's will had destined the son to die all the way through the Old Testament. He was the ram who was sacrificed instead of Isaac. He was the Passover lamb whose blood had to be shed and painted on the door. He was the bronze snake that had to be lifted up so that everyone could look and live. And he was the scapegoat who would be sent into the desert to die to take the people's sins away from them on the great day of atonement. All of those pictures from the Old Testament were clear and pointed forward to what must happen, yet Isaiah's words were even more clear. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. And so Jesus, on the eve of the Passover, is faced with the terrible reality that he must be led like a lamb to the slaughter or else every promise of God made since the dawn of time will be a lie, will be unfulfilled and broken. The seed of the woman to crush the devil's head would indeed be crushed under the weight of sin here in the garden. The promised offspring to Abraham who would be a blessing to all people on earth would indeed be a blessing to no one. The lion of the tribe of Judah would never triumph. The prince of peace would bring no peace and the royal king to reign on David's throne forever and ever would never reign on any throne at all. If Jesus does not go through with his father's will on this night, And so every promise of God hinges on Jesus' obedience. If not, if he does not do it, God becomes a liar and every promise a lie and Jesus becomes the deceiver that they all thought he was. So eternity hangs in the balance that night in the Garden of Gethsemane and yet God has not left our salvation up to chance. He has not left it in the hands of flaky sinners like you and I, who we'd have to say, well, maybe he will, maybe he won't. No, God has entrusted it only to his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who on that night prays, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
Here you must see Jesus, the perfect son of God, the one with whom he is well pleased, continue in the face of the most agonizing temptation to be pleasing and faithful to God's will. Behold him in the garden, the one who is faithful and keeps on being faithful for your sake faithful to his father's will and see him in contrast to the people that he was doing it for. Betrayers and rejectors and sleepers. One thing Jesus had asked of his disciples that night, keep watch. And yet they couldn't even do it for one hour. So he returns to them and wakes them up and pleads with them one more time, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the flesh is indeed weak, as is ours. Those disciples that night, totally unable to do even just the one thing Jesus asks of them, but even more, are we unable to fulfill the entirety of God's perfect will, which demands perfection from us. And so it must be Jesus who goes forward as the substitute, who goes forward one more time to pray, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Since there was no one else who does good, it had to be him. And Jesus was coming to accept that reality that it had to be him, the faithful and righteous one to do it on behalf of, of the faithless and unrighteous. It was just as Paul said, it had to be the obedience of the righteous one so that through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. It was not only with his active obedience of choosing to do and to fulfill his father's will throughout his life, but it was also with his passive obedience his willingness to be subjected to death, to become obedient to death, even on a cross, that Jesus has provided himself as the perfect substitute. He has proved himself faithful on your behalf. Paul tells us in Romans 8 what that does for us, what that means for us, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Did you hear that? That part right at the end? The righteous requirements of the law have been fully met in us because Jesus has been faithful for you. He has done it in our place. And so he has also been proving that God has been faithful to you and to every promise he has ever made. Jesus was indeed proving that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God had indeed sent the seed of the woman to crush the devil's head. God had indeed sent the offspring of Abraham to be a blessing to every people on earth. 
God had sent the lion of the tribe of Judah to triumph and the prince of peace to bring peace. And God had sent the royal king, the king of all kings, to reign on David's throne forever. And so you must see Jesus here in the garden as the answer to every one of God's promises. What did Paul say in our second lesson today? No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Has Jesus crushed the devil's head? Yes, he has. Has Jesus been slaughtered as the lamb to take your sins away? Yes, he has. Has Jesus brought the forgiveness of sins for all people? Yes, he most certainly has. Has Jesus risen from the dead to live and rule eternally? Yes, he absolutely has. This is most certainly true. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us, spoken by us to the glory of God. We say amen. Yes, it is true to every promise that God has made to us because Jesus has been faithful for you and God has been faithful to you. You know, as if his faithfulness hasn't done enough, it even goes one step further. God has been faithful. He has declared us to be faithful and that faithfulness even carries on through us, in our lives, in the jobs, the tasks, the roles that God has given us. Since Jesus' faithfulness covers over us, it also soaks into us and through us and out of us. Even while we live in this world in the struggle against sin, death, and the devil, Jesus enables us to be faithful. So how do we remember that when it matters the most, when we're faced with temptation? How do we remember that God enables us to be faithful? The Bible has this awesome formula for declaring God's faithfulness and then telling us what that does for us. So you've got to hear all of these passages just strung together one after another, but you can't just hear them. You, the people of God, You've got to say amen to them. And so I know generally we're not in the habit of like yelling out amen during the sermon, but today I am going to ask you to do it all together as a liturgical response. So here's your line. Amen. Yes, it's true. Practice with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Amen. Yes, it's true. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Amen. Yes, it's true. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Yes, it's true. If we are faithless, God remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. Amen. Yes, it's true. Oh, I forgot to put that one up. Sorry. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Amen. Yes, it's true. 
The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Amen. Yes, it's true. As surely as God is faithful, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Amen. Yes, it's true. Realize, dear people of God, what you have just declared to be true, that God has been, is, and always will be faithful for you, to you, and his faithfulness carries on through you. He has made you to be all kinds of different things, fathers and mothers, married people and single people, sons and daughters, employers, pastors, teachers, employees, post office workers, and whatever else God has given you to do, he has been faithful to you and he enables you to be faithful in your lives to his glory. Amen.